0: As a preface to this episode, our conversation today will at times be somber, morbid, and possibly disquieting. Hello, and welcome to Stride and Saunter, episode 191. I'm Kip Clark, and joining me in the studio today, we have another guest, Dan Farina. Hey Kip, thanks for having me on. Of course, it's my pleasure, especially for what I suspect will be a more philosophical episode than our typical fair here. The title, To Tell the Young of Ends, is a reference to an idea I once came across in a random YouTube video I was watching, so random that I didn't even take notes on who was speaking or when I watched it. But in this conversational video, an older gentleman in his 40s roughly was saying that he wished as a younger person he had been told that life would eventually come to an end, of course alluding to the fact that we all die. And this utterance, this hope of sorts, really sat with me because I think most of us are terrified to learn about death, don't want to discuss it, and especially avoid at all costs any conversations with young people, especially children under or around the age of five, regarding death as a topic. And I wanted to explore it with you today because it is really nuanced and I suspect will reveal certain aspects of the human condition and of human nature. Now, the first point I'd like to tackle regards the historian's fallacy, which is when people in the present presume that their previous or past selves would have access to the same knowledge, information, or perspectives that they do in the present, which of course is not true. That's how life often works. We garner more and deeper information as we grow older, and it's often the case that our younger selves simply don't know as much. And I bring up the historian's fallacy because in the anecdote which inspired this episode, an older man wishes his younger self had different information, which might have led to a different life trajectory. But he sees the world through older eyes at this point and i suspect might not have wanted that information if his younger self could somehow be aware of its weight and not yet know it and i'd really love to explore that with you because our older and younger selves by definition are not the same and rarely
1: see the same things in the world they look out upon i think it is quite likely that his younger self wouldn't have wanted that information But I think that could be precisely why his younger self might have needed that information. To me, death is the ultimate representation of our vulnerability as human beings. And our vulnerability is the last thing that we tend to want to learn about. However, I think developing a behavioral pattern of avoiding our vulnerabilities, of avoiding the information that suggests our vulnerabilities, and avoiding those things that make us vulnerable, is ultimately conducive to weakening and blinding ourselves as persons. When we run away from something, what we're doing with our body is telling our minds that that thing is bigger than us. When a paper that you have to write is scary to you and you refuse to write that paper for two weeks, each day you procrastinate is another message to your subconscious that that paper is something bigger and scarier than you are, that you're weak and unable to cope with what that paper entails. All this is to say that your psyche doesn't know what size it is. Your psyche doesn't know how strong and courageous you are. You exist as potential, and your behavior tells you what you are and what the world is. And so developing a pattern of acting courageously is the way that you build yourself up into a person who is courageous, and a person who can take something valuable out of those anxiety-inducing stimuli and situations. Now, the question remains as to whether death is so terrible that it is, in fact, bigger than us. And perhaps death might be bigger than a small child, but smaller than an adult. But it seems to me that adults who are responsible for passing the culture down to children have a responsibility to demonstrate to the children that the culture is capable of transcending death, which means that the culture has to offer ways of being that are sufficiently meaningful that you can stack them up against death and still affirm life. Regardless of your age, death is enormous. But it's possible that life can be bigger, that life can be more important. And to inculcate in children a tendency to avoid death is to close that question from a young age. You make use of some really excellent turns of phrase there that get
0: my mind going in various directions. Firstly, the idea that death might be bigger than a small child, but smaller than an adult, sparks a somewhat algebraic scenario in my mind where death has a numerical value, and that value could be found via mathematical methods. And I wonder if there is, or could be calculated, some ideal average age at which most people, would be somehow perfectly ready to receive that information or knowledge Because the speaker from this YouTube video implied that he had learned this lesson or information somewhat later than he wished retroactively. But I suspect for many of us, our experience on finding out about this grim terminus feels a little bit premature and overwhelms us. I remember distinctly when I really thought about death for the first time in the sixth grade, and it consumed me for about a month, and that was really unpleasant. But I'm also of the belief that once and if you are able to get past that really bleak fact, you can come to a place of genuine meaning and fulfillment and legitimate urgency that you should make use of your limited time because it won't be around forever. Though I'm also not a proponent of telling every child that life will end eventually. And you had also articulated that avoidance leads to weakening and blinding ourselves, which I agree with, it's far more healthy when possible to confront problems, problematic ideas, people you disagree with, of course, in respectful and healthy ways. But your statement begs the question in my mind, if this is unhealthy within an individual, is it also true that when adults or members of a community or society are avoiding difficult truths or vulnerabilities that they are weakening or blinding people around them including children and i believe that is a truth in our reality we see a lot of generational ideas that are passed on and may be toxic unhealthy or ultimately burdensome for new generations and those are ideas that are passed on or thinking differently truths that have not been confronted intellectual debt, if you will, that hasn't been paid, and that's being passed on to the younger generation for them to deal with. And it's often the case that we mimic our elders, and in that event, if they haven't confronted certain truths, well then why should I? Because you weren't brave enough, strong enough, patient enough, whatever, to face your fears and vulnerabilities as my elder. In a lot of cases, my parents, my grandparents, whoever your elders or leaders are in your particular circumstances. And bridging from that, I'd like to ask you, and of course implicitly the audience, if the messenger matters. If the information, the message itself is you and other people who are alive will at some point die and reach the end of life, does it make a difference who that messenger is or what the medium is that transmits that message? I personally don't know, but as someone who does enjoy processing information on his own and later getting feedback from other people, I don't think it's inconceivable that in my personal case, Had I read about the end of life for human beings and later discussed it with trusted friends or loved ones, I may have come to a healthier, gentler, and more well-rounded appreciation of this very heavy fact than the one that I actually encountered, which was via a television show that, in my opinion, handled death in a very quick way because that's the nature of the medium of television in many cases. It doesn't belabor or thoroughly unpack concepts because a 30-minute time
1: slot doesn't always afford that luxury. To me, the natural response to learning about death is one question. If we are going to die, then what is the point of life? And so I think a messenger of death, so to speak, ought to be one who can answer that question. The problem is, I think very few people in our society can currently answer that question in a convincing way. After all, very few human experiences or human ways of being are capable of standing in the face of death and still retaining their life-affirming worth. For example, it's a common message in our culture that happiness is the ultimate goal of life. But it becomes obvious that happiness can't stand in the face of death because as soon as you start reflecting upon death or experiencing deaths close to you, happiness flits away and leaves you unarmored. Another cultural message, predominantly prevalent in academic spheres, is that all value is in fact relative, that all that's real in this world are the types of facts that can be derived by the scientific method, and everything in the affective domain, which is to say, the domain of emotion, the domain of experience, is comparatively empty. This postmodern perspective puts the kid learning about death in an empty universe surrounded by planets and stars and infinity and no values. In such a universe, death is terrifying, or even worse, attractive. Despite these cultural messages, I believe that human beings can accept death and affirm life in the face of it. But to do so, we require a strong philosophy and way of life geared toward generating meaning. And I believe that a way of life geared toward generating meaning is a way of life characterized by courage, in which you prove to yourself the value of the things you care about by risking your safety and security in pursuit of those things. As the thing you're afraid of grows larger when you run away from it, the thing you care about grows more important as you run toward it in the face of opposition. So a worthy messenger of death ought to be able to point out to kids what things are worth running towards. I agree, and I was wondering as you were speaking, who or what
0: my ideal messenger might be if I were to rework my past in some way. And I'm of the belief as I suspect might be true of many listeners, that my ideal messenger would be someone who is older, satisfied, and grateful. And I think those things are all true for me because if they were older, I trust that their perspective on a young person's life would be relatively clear and polished. They would be able to see back through the clouds of adolescence and young adulthood and really remember what they might have wished for or seen in the world as a young person. And also, as an older individual, someone who is hopefully closer to death than I would be as a young person, I suspect their perspective would have eroded all of the superficial, less meaningful things in life, and would leave standing some of the more important pillars that they could describe to me, in addition to the description or truth that death is part of our reality. And as an added bonus to having said conversation with an older person, it would also reduce the stratification that I see in our society, in which young and old don't really interact with one another very much. And we live highly segmented lives when it comes to age as a demographic factor, which isn't necessarily terrible, but in my outlook, it deprives various age groups of the wisdom, perspectives, and passions of other age groups, which links back to the reluctance to tell a young child or someone who is young about death Because if you haven't spent much time with young people, you might presume them to be these innocent and helpless forms which are simply wandering around and have absolutely no sense of self-awareness or self-worth. And I'll concede that children are still learning about themselves, but there is a wisdom that children have and I feel are stripped of as they grow older in our society. For example, the absolute joy of rolling around in the grass or the mud and nature-centric way which many adults would scoff at because you'll get your clothes dirty or you might catch some illness. And sure, these are concerns worth thinking about, but I suspect in many ways that there are children, if not all children, who would be capable of meeting this very harsh truth of death, this statement from someone or something, with their own rebuttal about how much they enjoy life. I'll bet there are some children who would say, in response to this knowledge, well, I'll just have to live a meaningful life for as much time as I have. Certainly, I think there are children who might be traumatized, but I'll come back to this idea of the historian's fallacy. How much do we really understand about being younger versions of ourselves when we can only look back with current eyes? Unless, of course, as children, we kept thorough notes and
1: maintained diaries, which is not true of many of us in our youth. I think your point that kids might be stronger and wiser than adults give them credit for is dead on. Two examples of such come quickly to mind. First of all, kids have a remarkable tendency to notice stuff that adults are avoiding. Whereas adults perceive the world in a very top-down way, knowing what they want to look for, knowing what they want to do, kids have a more receptive, broad form of perception. They can pick up on behavioral cues, little pieces of information that adults wish they could sweep under the rug. And thus one fundamental problem with not telling kids about death is that if kids pick up on the fact that we do die and notice simultaneously that adults are avoiding the concept altogether, then we teach our children that reality is something that can and ought to be avoided. And I believe nothing could be further from the truth. The Greek philosopher Socrates was renowned for his wisdom not because of how much he knew, but because of how clearly and deeply he perceived his own ignorance. All of us live on tiny conceptual islands, on a vast ocean of the unknown. And in order to improve ourselves, we must constantly be intellectually humble, always ready to give up on some current belief we have in order to take in the better belief that's waiting. To develop such humility, we need a respect for reality, which is to say a respect for the truth, and adults modeling avoidance does not help in that regard. Secondly, I thought of a gorgeous old idea, that the trajectory of true development involves the adult regaining the wisdom of the child. And I think in our culture, what this means is adults relearning, contrary to prevailing narratives, that what seems to matter, what we deeply feel to matter, really does matter. Children cannot help but to take reality, to take experience seriously. Adults in contemporary Western culture have sophisticated tools for using our minds to pry ourselves away from our emotional experience, to abstract ourselves away from our values, Critical thinking is necessary. As I mentioned in my previous point, critical thinking can be a crowbar that one can put under one's current conceptions in order to grow. However, when critical thinking comes to turn up the bedrock of experience and alienate us from our childlike wonder, then we must also be humble about critical thinking itself.
0: I appreciate your wording that children can't help but take reality seriously because it does constitute the world they know in a lot of cases, where children play or explore. They are face-to-face with reality, and it's often adults who take them out of it to inject a lens or perspective on the reality that a child might experience. And there's nothing necessarily wrong with that, but it is, by nature, a tad dishonest or a bit less real, even if that is done with healthy or compassionate intentions. Children, in many ways, constitute humanity's closest connections to reality, to what it means to be alive in a world that we will never fully understand. But before we close this episode, what would you like our audience to consider after listening to this conversation?
1: To close, I would like to ask the listeners two things. Whether we should or should not withhold knowledge of death from children, it seems to be the case that we often do. I ask why this is the case. And second, do we need to reconceptualize death, which is to say, to think of death in terms of reincarnation or heaven or spirits that live on in order to affirm life in the face of death? Or can life be big enough and real enough that death is small in the face of it?
0: On a similar plane of redefining or recontextualizing something, we often, if not always, define young or youth based on proximity to birth. But maybe distance from death might be an equally valid and somewhat more thought-provoking definition of what it means to be young. And finally, perhaps it's impossible to be young, in a sense, and know about death maybe in some of our cultural, if not linguistic definitions, youth implies an innocence that knowledge of death excludes. And so I would ask the audience, does youth imply some ignorance of heavy realities? And will you necessarily mature upon learning about those realities? And Dan, I'd very much like to thank you not only for handling this in a thoughtful manner, but for agreeing to discuss a complex and, of course, somber topic today. It's been my pleasure, Kip. Thanks for having me on. You are, of course, quite welcome. But as always, we want this to be a conversation among, not simply a conversation between. Ours are only two voices, and we are definitely not the only two people who were previously young and eventually will both die. So we'd really love to hear from you out there. You can connect with us on Twitter or on Facebook. You can also email us via strideandsaunter at gmail.com, and if you enjoyed this episode, consider subscribing to the show, as well as supporting us on Patreon, where in exchange for your support, you'll receive perks like exclusive bonus episodes. And as always, we thank you very much for listening, and from thought to word and voice to ear, this is Kip Clark, signing off.